Hello and welcome to the latest uh, Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, Dr. Paul Jordan, the CEO of Amati Global Investors, uh, who, with his colleagues, team of three, run three funds that specialise in small cap and unquoted stocks. We're meeting at a very interesting time, Paul. Obviously, there is a lot of speculation about uh, possible changes in interest rates. Uh, we've had a very long bull market. But how do, where do you think we are in the market cycle? And in particular, how does that relate to where you're investing, which is in the small cap arena? Oh, I'm glad you're asking the easy questions first. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think trying to predict what's going to happen in 2017 is a bit of a mug's game. The, the, the range of possible outcomes is very wide. Um, should we feel anxious about it? Yes. Um, is it possible that the market goes up a long way? Yes, it is. Could it go down a long way? Yes, it could. Um, I, I, I think um, really we're letting ourselves be, uh, in, the, in these conditions, the, the best thing to do is make sure you've got a sensibly diversified portfolio where you have some things that will do well if bond rates go up and some things that will do well if conditions remain similar to how they are now. Um, being cognizant of the, that Donald Trump, for example, may do what he said he's going to do, he may not do what he said he's going to do. None of us um, has the first idea. Uh, Maybe he doesn't know that. So I, th- I think diversification is really crucial and uh, not being too aggressively positioned, uh, bearing in mind that conditions could suddenly get a lot tougher for investors. Um, on the other hand, it's it's equally possible scenario that money starts flooding out of bonds because um, if this is the top of the bond market, it's such a multi-decade bull market that um, very large amounts of money will come out of it and it's got to go somewhere and it probably goes into equities. So that's the bull case, if you like. Why, why it would be wrong from my point of view, from my way of thinking, to um, suddenly get too bearish on, on things. Well, I think this is a time for holding your nerve a bit. But there's a lot to be anxious about as well. So there's no point being too aggressive about how one's positioned. But it's not, your style is not to um, make market calls in any event. It's not your it's not. speciality. Your business is picking small companies. I'm thinking more of the fact that small companies have had a very good run on the whole over the last since the turn of the century. Um, and some would argue that lower interest rates have been a factor in that performance. Is that is that something you would agree with or...? Or not? Yes, I, th- I think it's impossible to to, to, to deny that, and, and particularly since two thousand and seven, uh, two thousand sorry two thousand nine, when the, at the end of the crisis, when the rates really came down to record levels. Um, I, yeah, I think that the, the, the quantitative easing program has, by and large, worked. I think one can say, maybe one could be critical of that view by saying it's too early to really tell, but. It's, the banking situation has by and large normalised and the banks are lending um, money, money supply is healthy um, the, the, this is a, these are conditions when if you're a dynamic small business you can do very well so the backdrop has been actually very healthy and there, there are investors around there's, there's people who provide capital the cost of capital is reasonable um, reasonable to very low one might say so I, I suppose one has to conclude the next big move in the cost of capital is up. Um, the question is when and, and, and what sort of form does it take? And is that accompanied by uh, a rising inflationary level? If we, if we return to an inflation type dynamic, then different sorts of companies will prosper. And it's, 
it's too early to really be very clear about um, how that's going to play out. And, and investors will guess. So if you like property stocks, for example, have been under pressure in the last 12 months and they had a wonderful bull run 2009 to 15, and, and now they're under pressure because people are thinking, well, if rates go up, what happens? Property yields need to rise, question mark. And I think it's, it's a little bit too early to tell because property, of course, is a real income asset class and bonds aren't. So is, it, is, is that... It's apples and pears. Yeah. So actually, there are, I think it will actually take quite some time for the market to figure out um, what the real implications of rising rates ha- are if they do happen. And um, it's not, of course, not totally clear that they will happen. Um, and if they do, if rates do start to rise, it's absolutely not clear how far they're going to go. So if rates only go to 2%, um, I, th- I think that's livable with, we can live with from those points of view. If they go back to 5% quickly... That clearly the UK economy couldn't cope with that. So then we're in a very, very different kind of scenario. So sort of deriving from that, um, it seems like you're saying that there's there's no particular reason why uh, small caps and equities in general could not do well in this environment, but there may be some quite significant sector rotation within that uh, environment yeah. as we move from one interest rate regime to another. Yeah. And do you find... Talking to uh, the companies you invest in or the companies you're looking to invest in, um, I have to ask you the inevitable Brexit question. I mean, what sort of uh, feedback are you getting from them about the impact on their businesses? Obviously, I guess most of the companies you invest in are uh, UK-based and uh, therefore you might think of being more at risk perhaps than uh, some of the big global companies that can survive this quite easily. Actually, it's, it's interesting. I, I, haven't, I haven't met any business that's panicking about What's going on with Brexit? And there was a set that there was a thought before the referendum, and, and I, I myself worried about this that the that the period of uncertainty that would ensue would be a little bit crippling for a lot of businesses. And actually, we haven't seen that. And most businesses are taking the view that they're going to be able to survive whatever happens. Uh, they're not going to start to try and second guess what's going to happen too strongly. Um, the currency moves have hurt some and helped others, so that's just a mixed picture. Mixed picture. The, 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 the general backdrop of quantitative easing and super low interest rates in the UK is very helpful, and, and actually the bounce we've seen in the economy since June has also been helpful. But then most of them are also aware that we're in a what we call a, what we tend to call the phony war period post the vote, and. The nothing's actually happened deceptive, yeah. nothing has changed no. yeah. and, and not only has nothing changed but we also have no clue what Brexit means yet and as it becomes clearer you know, my, my expectation is actually that during the course of next year the honeymoon period after the vote ends and it gets a lot tougher and people do start to worry much more about the implications of it the nuts and bolts implications of it all yeah? and, uh, yes and, and the, the the referendum, in a way, was quite casual in, in the sense there was nothing was written down. There's no no arguments were formal arguments were ever made on either side, really, and, and there's no prospectus produced, and so we don't actually know what set of assumptions the people who who were the proponents of Brexit have made, and so therefore we're not going to know if those assumptions are not met, and if this will all become clearer next year. It's it's so complicated, of course, that. Um, it's a very difficult thing to work out and I think we're all just assuming that there is a way through that leads to a kind of compromise, a, a, a reasonable fudge solution at the end of it. 
Um, but it's not comfortable, and I think it will go from feeling um, pleasant, very pleasantly surprised that it's all been better than we thought uh, post the vote to once the actual the real debates get going, um, a little bit shocked about A, how complicated it is, B, how much it's going to cost, C, how long it's going to take, and, um, and D, that the end result is not going to be as attractive as we thought. So we have to hope, therefore, that... Um common sense and uh, sort of economic uh, uh, self-interest does actually, on both sides, does produce some kind of workable solution within yeah. some kind of workable time frame. Yes, and that was one of the key assumptions of the, the, the proponents of Brexit, that, that rational self-interest would be what dictated the outcome. Yes. Well, these are not, uh, these are not political podcasts, these are, these are uh, uh, investment podcasts. Yeah. So perhaps we can, we, we can leave aside the sort of the rights and wrongs of it all, and focus on, uh, let's just say there's going to be a period of, as you say, relative uncertainty will persist, or perhaps we'll begin to see the uncertainty that people feared we would see immediately after the vote, which hasn't actually happened. But nevertheless, against that sort of backcloth, um, your funds, you have three funds, and they, uh, they invest, all invest in small cap or, or uh, unlisted uh, equities. It's, it's, really, it's really listed. We, we, we the great majority is enlisted, yeah, particularly... We hardly do any unquoted. Right. Uh, and those three funds are one is a small cap fund, one is a, uh, a venture capital trust, and the other is a is a what's called an aim portfolio, which is designed to uh, take advantage of the fact that that certain qualifying or most qualifying aim shares don't aren't eligible for or exempt from inheritance tax when passed on. That's a great advantage. And that's a service rather than a fund. It's a service rather than a fund, of course. Yeah. Shares in your own name to get the benefit. Yes, but it's a portfolio of stocks. Yeah. Which well, had, isn't strictly speaking a fund, but it's a managed portfolio for people. I, yeah. I do, I do understand that point. Okay, so looking across that sort of spectrum of stocks that you uh, could own and the ones that you do own, um, where in your experience, you've been doing this now for fifteen years or more. Um, where in your experience um, can you characterise what kind of stocks are the ones that have done very well for you and in general um, in the small cap and the AIM universe? Yeah. Um, I mean, what makes a good company in this in this environment? I, I, yes, I mean, we, I think over the years we've we've become a lot clearer about what it is we're looking for, and it does. The, the, the detail of what we look for does vary between different sectors. So, you know, what makes a, a great um, industrial business is slightly different to what might make a great software business. It might be slightly different from what makes a great natural resources company. Um, but there are certain things which they, they have in common um, and the, 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 the top of the list of, of course is that if you're a small cap investor you're really very much backing a group a set of people the set of people who are key to that business and uh, it's, it's always of, of course it's often easy to focus on just one or two the chief executive and finance director but it's a, it's a bigger group than that invariably um, and so we pay a lot of attention to who we're backing and, um, and what, what their character is, how they like to run businesses, um, uh, what qualities they bring, how well they understand the industry they're in. Um, we're looking for people who have you know, very profound knowledge of the areas they're operating in, um, uh, a great set of skills for actually running a business and, uh, and a vision for where they want to take it and a real idea about there's this opportunity in the market that's what I'm pursuing, and this is how I'm going to execute it. So people can make that very clear. I tend to be tend to be the right kind of people to back. 
Um, and then on top of that, we'll look, obviously you look at track record and um, uh, you look at the, um, the, the detail of the business itself and where you know, the, the, the telltale signs of a good business. I mean, what, you know, what, we're, what we're trying to find, of course, is simply great businesses run by great, great people. And then you're looking for telltale signs, and of course none of these are foolproof. But you know, the business will typically be well financed, and um, I think that the people who run businesses well really understand how they should be financed, and they don't take chances with it. So a business that's found itself overgeared, it's a sign that actually the, the, the management of that company allowed it to become overgeared in a way they must have miscalculated, been too aggressive. Um, we like businesses that are still run by the original founders or the entrepreneurs who created them. Um, that, that, um, that, that's another good telltale sign. Um, uh, we, we, um, we look for businesses where the accounting of the company is um, clean. I mean, so the, account, the, the way accounts are presented and the way the corporate governance of a company is presented tells you a lot about the character of that business. And so we look at all kinds of things to do with that. Um, and then we, we will be doing the, 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 the sort of classic industry research and um, trying to estimate the sizes of markets. That if, you're not, if a company says this is our opportunity, try to validate that in some way. Um, talking to peer group companies, looking at what potential competitors may do, um, trying to validate claims that are being made, um, looking at the the, the things that protect a business, the, thing that, the things that make it unique, and how unique are they, how many people might come along and try and attack it, or how many people might have a better idea than that company, and if they have a better idea, can they execute it? Um, so just the, all, all the competitive positioning and threats and opportunities, um, that, that sort of analysis. So you're starting, this is I think an important point that people often don't appreciate about small cap investing, you're starting by looking for really good businesses. You're not starting by saying I want to buy something that's really cheap. You're not a kind of like a Definitely traditional, no. because that's there are plenty of those out there, but a lot of them are cheap yeah. for a good reason. You're looking for good businesses that can continue to, to grow and to most cases to grow um, and to maintain discipline over their returns on capital and yeah. balance sheet controls, that kind of thing. And our, our dream investment is one where we can buy it and forget about it. Yeah. Well, we never do forget about it, but <laughs> uh, we wish we, we, liked, we liked it when we can. Right. Okay, so can you give me an example? I don't know, are there any examples of, of, of small cap stocks that you've actually owned for more than 10 years? Or do you, is your style to trade in and out of these things? I mean, how do you, how do you go about managing that? If, can you give me an example of one that you've stuck with over these years? Um, well, I, I can, I'll, I'll talk about some sort of prominent examples. Yeah, I mean, um, why don't we talk about some of the biggest holdings in the VSTs? Uh, and the VSTs tend to take very long-term positions in the companies they back. And um, it's something that I think is, 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 is one thing that sets VCTs apart, actually, as investors. It's how long-term they tend to be. Because you know, even more so, if we, if we can, when we find a good business to back, we only get one chance to buy it, typically. When, that, that's when it's raising money at the beginning of its life. Um, if it's a great business, it may not need any more money after that. Or it may come back one more time. Um, and in, the, in, bo in both of these seats, the, the holdings which are now very significant in size have got there over many years. So, for example, in, in Amati VST, we have a whole, I think one of the biggest holdings is a company called Craneware, which you probably know. It's a, uh, a Scottish run business, but all of its sales are in the US. 
made to US hospitals and it's specialized in one particular market which is uh, called revenue integrity. So it's software which helps hospitals get their billing right and make their insurance claims properly. Um, and it's, it's, this is a, it sounds a simple thing to do, but actually it's, there are thousands of different things that go on in hospitals. They all have to be recorded in the right way. The claims have to be exactly right. They can't just be approximately right. And there are all sorts of penalties on hospitals if they get it wrong. So Craneware made this their, their core business. And they're one of a small handful of providers who provide this kind of software. And um, in terms of accounting, it's worth, it's worth saying that the, um, the, the, the company has always sold its software on an annual license basis, which means that they have very good visibility over not just this year's revenue, but next year. It's next a recur year. It tends to be a recurring it tends to be a recurring revenue. Yeah. And it um, has lots and lots of the characteristics of companies we like. It's um, still run by uh, one of the original founders, one has recently left. And um, the, the, um, the quality of earnings is good. The growth rate's been impressive. It did, the, the, the company had about a three to four year hiccup, I'd say. You know, so it floated in 2007, I think, if I'm remembering right. I'll, I can double check that. Uh, it was around 2007. And uh, we bought that in an RTBST, and obviously we still own it now, nearly 10 years later. Um, it did very, very well for a period of time. And then the US hospitals got a little bit distracted by a program that was imposed on them to do with electronic patient record management. It, it happened in the UK. It was a disaster in the UK. It cost the taxpayer, I don't know, 13 billion pounds or something to try and build a system that never got built. In the US, in the US they did it a bit differently, but they forced the hospitals to buy this. And that really took the wind out of Craneware's sales because they were selling the software that they also needed, but the budgets got moved. And we're coming through the end of that period. So if you look at the share price charts, it sort of surges up, it falls, must have been by 40% from the top. And then it's now reached all kinds of new highs, particularly since the Brexit referendum when the currency benefit they got a huge currency uh, was hugely helpful. And then it's come off recently because now people aren't sure what Trump's going to do to US hospitals. I think that'll be fine, but um, there's a bit more uncertainty, so the shares have come back a bit. And they've probably got a little bit over overdone after the, the, the Brexit vote anyway. But, you know, we see ourselves as very long-term investors. And, uh, that, and it's hugely helpful for the VSTs because if we can hang on to the most successful companies for that kind of length of time, then they play a role in the portfolio of um, giving it real anchor points, you know, those, those big holdings, um, then lower the risk profile of the portfolio. So when we buy new positions in, they're much smaller, clearly they're also riskier. Um, but they then fit into a portfolio, they're not dominating the portfolio. So compared to when you first put the portfolio together, in other words, you've got this mixture now of mature companies and, yeah. and startup companies, which yeah. by definition makes it less risky than it yeah, was at the beginning. Yeah, helpful. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it lowers the volatility a lot and, yeah. and makes the whole portfolio much more robust. But there's still some, uh, from what you said, there's still obviously some share price volatility along yes. the way. And well, so this yeah. is where you get the test of whether you bail out or not. And the answer appears to be you, you stick in there unless there's some fundamental reason for, yes, for thinking. Yes, particularly from the, for the VCTs, because if we sell a stock in the VCTs, we can't buy it back. Yeah. <clears throat> it's gone forever. Yeah. And actually that, that way of thinking is, does impose quite a good discipline. It's, it's, um, it encourages it to be more VCT, patient, long-term investors. It makes the VCs very good investors for the companies they invest in. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so then, then uh, that's one example. Perhaps um, can you give me an example of one where perhaps you changed your mind about something and, and disposed of it permanently? I mean, and, and why that might happen, why these kind of circumstances might happen? Sure, um, you must have one or two like that. Okay, you want me to wash my dirty laundry in public now? <laughs> Not really, does it? We did. Um, it, it will happen. I mean, we will change, if we change our mind on a company and we feel we got it wrong, we'll, we will um, uh, res- you know, we'll, we'll change our position quickly. And, and um, there was a company we bought in 2014 where within a few months of it floating, we completely changed our view of it. And, and um, uh, normally when a company floats, we, we try to see... We'll try and do two or three months' work on a business before it reflects, if we possibly can, because uh, these are long-term decisions and they they require a lot of research. Um, sometimes a company will float and we only see it ten days before it's going to float. And then we have to make a much quicker decision and then carry on doing a lot more research after it's actually floated. And there was a case of a company... Um, oh, I'm, I'm going to forget its name now... Um, I probably blanked it out because it was a nasty experience. Um, uh, it was. Um, what field was it in? It was a technology. It was a tele- yeah. Supposedly, it had unique technology in hosting software, and um, ah, well, I can't remember the name of this thing. Um, well, never mind the I'll, name. I'll, I'll fill you in on the name later. Yeah, but, okay. Um, it, it suffice it to say, it floated. Um, the shares actually went up. Um, we changed our minds, started selling, shares got back to the float price, carried on selling. We probably, by the time we sold everything, we probably lost 5 to 10% of our money. And um, I, the company, the shares kept, I mean, it was a complete disaster as a business. So it was, it was lucky for us we changed our minds. And I think with, it may have even gone bust now, or, or it's gone down 95% or something. And it was and what, a, was, what was the key point there that made you change your mind? We thought we thought the company had some barriers to entry that it didn't have, and when right. we realised that it was really, and also we we thought the company had it spent something like thirty million pounds developing this supposedly plat, thing called the platform piece of technology which would allow them to host um, Microsoft hosted software more effectively than uh, Microsoft Link, I think was the name of the, the, the product they could host. Um, but then we actually realised it was just a commodity and, and lots, right. it was really not that unique at all. And the fact they were losing so much money was a sign of incompetence, not a sign of having made some investments that were necessary. Well, that's an interesting point because, I mean, a lot of people, when they look at AIM, the AIM market, they, they, they notice the fact that since it was launched, you know, the, the index overall of, of AIM shares has not gone up at all over a long period of time. Um, and they tend to think it's very risky because it's laxer regulation and so on. Um, but actually, within that universe, there are some extraordinarily good companies uh, that are there for the right reasons. As you say, some of them may be family-owned companies which have been in business for a hundred years or more. Yeah. So it's it's often it's, it, it has a sort of the public image of AIM is not quite uh, the same as, yes. as its as reality. AIM comes in for a lot of stick, and, and of course. The, um, the two London Business School professors who, who write the, 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 the gospel of small companies every year um, you know, rightly pick up on the fact that, that if you look at the AIM index, it's been pretty appalling. Yeah. Um, and there's certain other phenomenon within AIM which you know, are worth noting. That if, if you were to look at the very large group of companies on AIM that have market caps below £15 million and you produce an index of them, it would look, out, it would look so bad that nobody would ever... By any of them, 
yeah. crunching. So again, you know, one of our one of the disciplines we try to follow is is to buy companies that are outside of that. Occasionally, we buy one in there, but we know we're taking a very big risk when we do. Um, really, you want to be you need you need to be worth more than fifteen million pounds to be worth listing. It's yeah. just simply not the A market is not designed for companies smaller than that. Some of, of those companies are. might have once have been slightly bigger than fifteen million, of course. They're not Most necessarily of them start bigger than fifteen million. <laughs> some actually float smaller. And it's, yeah. it's generally speaking, a mistake. Remember, AIM encompasses um, so many things. So, through one of the reasons the index was bad, of course, in, in the AIM market was the dominant market in the dot com boom. And as we all know, in the dot com boom, uh, you could float, um, you know, a pantomime donkey. If it was internet connected, it would be worth several billion pounds or something. You know, it, absurd things happened, and, and there was. Uh, this frenzy almost of feeding frenzy on the stock market for anything internet related and all of that um, all, all, all of that over hype um, really damaged the, the AIM market primarily so that's one big chunk of the damage and then there was the mining boom from 2004 shall we say to 2012 a long boom where Again, you know, at the peak, 40% of AIM was resources stocks. Yeah. And although there's only a handful, were any good. So, you know, one of the things about exploration companies that um, is really worth remembering if you ever invest in one is that 90% of them go bust. So you've got to be very sure you're not in one of those 90% if you're going to buy one. Um, or you're buying it on the basis you're going to, be able to sell it for more money before it goes bust. Which, of course, actually what most people, I think that's the logic that's generally applied. Um, if you're being more rational, you just don't buy them. In the first place, yeah. Yeah, but that, that's a hard discipline to follow because like, like all investment um, uh, booms, they're very tempting to join in. So that, that, that also, you know, the mining, the whole mining natural resources area, with oil and gas as well, did aim a lot of damage. And some, these were large amounts of money that went into some of these companies that then fell over. And that's before you have the, you know, the other third segment of of damage, if you like, to, to aim is you know, the high-profile um, um, misdemeanors on the market where you get somebody who knows how to gain the system but brings, raises a huge amount of money um, and is running rings around the investors and the corporate finances and you know, um, running an empty shell, as well, there have been a few famous examples, which I better not name for fear of getting sued, but you know, some of the, the, those things do the market damage as well, of course, and actually they do happen on the full list as well. That's not unique to aim. Yeah, <clears throat> we shouldn't forget that. Do you think there should be more tighter regulation of over what is allowed to come to the market, or would that not defeat um, no, the I, point? The point of it, really, to some extent. I mean, I, I, tighter regulation is not necessarily the way to go. I, 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 what I think what we need is is better better enforcement of the regulation we have rather than tighter regulation. I mean, there's a there's a great tendency to keep on changing the rules. You actually make them less effective because then the familiarity with them goes. And of course, there are times when you do need to change rules and introduce new measures and respond to what's going on, but you tend to be fighting yesterday's battle when you do that. Um, I mean, what does concern me is that um, I'd say only a very... I've seen quite a number of frauds in my time as a small-cap fund manager, and a very small percentage of them have ever resulted in a prosecution or a court case. And our, our tendency to let these things go through a legal process is ridiculously low. Right. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, and that, that's a major flaw, actually. That, that, that I would love to see. That's what I mean by enforcement. When 
somebody is dishonest on the market, that it does result in a court case and there is a prosecution. And, and generally speaking, that doesn't happen. And that is probably because it's small beer and well, quite intensive to deal with it. The serious fraud office doesn't like dealing with small yeah. companies. It's not really worth their while. They don't have enough money to do it as well. The investors don't really have the expertise to do it or they don't have, they don't have financing to do it. Um, there, there isn't really a culture of doing that. And, and occasionally it happens. So Torex Retail, for example, was one of the cases where it did result in actually, a, I think it resulted in a prison sentence in the end. Yeah. And that's probably the only example I can really think of. And I've known many others where nothing happened. And so if they're too complicated or if they're overseas, or if the person, as in the person's moved overseas, what thought may have happened here, um, or if they're too small, it's not going to make enough waves so it doesn't get picked up. And then um, very often you may ring up and say, well, that's a police matter. And you know perfectly well if it's a police matter, the police don't have the expertise to do this stuff. If the serious fraud office won't do it, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So, yeah, and that that would be my that would be my wish. Not not we don't need the rules themselves are very comprehensive and, and onerous, but it's when they get when they get flouted. If nothing happens, then <clears throat> if you know if you if you're a person who deliberately knows how to game the system, you can do so kind of knowing you're very unlikely to get prosecuted or caught, and that's not a, that's not a great situation. Would you uh, assign any blame in these matters to the company's nominated advisors? I mean, every company has to have a nomad, as it's called, uh, who bring the thing to market and are, and are responsible for ensuring it, it, it complies with the re- what are obviously laxer regulations, or looser, I should say, looser regulations around AIM stock. Um, obviously, the, the broking sector's had a lot of pain yeah, in the last yeah. few years, and I mean, it's becoming in, a concern. In the sense that... In the sense that um, the, 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 the banking regulators in the UK have to take some responsibility for the banking crisis. So when you get a fraud on AIM, the nomad has to take some responsibility. Yeah, I mean, they, are, they effectively are the regulator for that company. So when there's a big failure, um, then some serious questions have to be asked about why, how did that get through? Was it, in some cases it may be unspottable, but in most cases there are clues that should get picked up. Let's just talk a little bit about, then moving on from that a little bit, to... Um issues of research and liquidity um, you know one of uh, one of the attractions of the A market for a professional like you is that the stocks are under researched in other words that create might create an opportunity for you to buy something at a very good price because it's not fully perhaps fully appreciated in the wider market mm. um, on the other hand you do want uh, the stocks you own to have reasonable amounts of liquidity so that you can sell them if you yeah. if you need to um, where do you think we are in, in the UK, in the A market, as, as far as sort of balancing those two considerations are? I mean, are they problems for you or are they just opportunities? No, I think, I think right where we are right now is um, it's quite a good place from that point of view. That, 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 that there's a habit in the UK of um, uh, having research produced by brokers, having research produced by independent research companies, of which there's a few, and they're, they're generally speaking, good, and they employ good quality analysts and the right good bits of research, and, and those are distributed freely. Um, and so it's, it's possible, I think, even with quite small business, to, to speak of a consensus expectation for a company in a way that if that was absent, it, that would be, that would be um, a nonsense to talk of. And it's not a nonsense. So you know, companies 
who have brokers and who have yeah. sometimes pay for a bit more research to be done as well. And you know, they create right help helpfully create a set of expectations for their future performance. And then if you're an investor, you that's your starting point. You when you meet the company, you're not starting from with a blank sheet blank of paper, paper. Trying to figure this all out for yourself. You're trying to add value to you're trying to assess what's already there and analyse the forecast and say, okay, well I think uh, this is understated or it's overstated and um, I think these are the risks and the analysts maybe missed this and this but um, we're doing that from a starting point but what, what I'm a little bit concerned about is that what's coming around the corner when we have MIFID 2 introduced in 2018 is that we then have a one-size-fits-all piece of legislation which is appropriate for the, um, the large-cap market where effectively um, research is paid for and it's paid for by commissions <clears throat> um, and I'm hoping that way, when the way MIFID 2 is conceived is you know, yes it makes fund um, charges more transparent but it doesn't actually do real damage to the market the danger for small cap is if um, if the brokers stop producing this research because nobody's allowed to pay anything for it that it then becomes just too opaque and too difficult for private investors um, to, to invest in the market. At the moment, the research is done and it's effectively given away. We know how to deal with that. It's marketing type research, but it's also it's not done stupidly. It's not, And if it is done stupidly, it just gets laughed out of court. So if that's no longer allowed or no longer happens in the MIFID 2 environment, I think it could do real damage to the small cap market. So I do have some concerns about that from what's coming down the pipeline. Where we are right now, I think it's, I'd say the markets work really pretty well, even for very small even, even at the small end of, of the market. It's a very different position where it suddenly becomes opaque and the amount of publicly available research is suddenly massively restricted. I think that, that would be really unhelpful. And it's already, because small companies, are, they're already not over-covered, as you said at the beginning, the last thing they want is any, dimi any diminution to the amount of coverage they get. So just to, just to wrap up then, um, Paul, our time is up. Um, as I said, it's been a very successful period for small cap in general. It's been a pretty successful period for um, if you manage to pick the the best aim stocks within that universe. Yes, no, we we are still huge fans of the UK small cap um, as, as an asset class. I think it's it's um, one of the most dynamic parts of the market you can invest in. It, it despite the failings and the sort of high profile, you know, we do get these very very irritating. Um, episodes of bad behaviour on the market, but that is not what dominates the market. And, and in general, um, if I compare corporate governance in the UK with what I see overseas, I'd much rather have our corporate governance. And, and you know, we do have, in many ways, world-leading corporate governance arrangements. And for the most part, you get very fair information when, you, when a prospectus is published, it's packed full of the most incredible due diligence information on the company. And, you know, that's been put together with huge amounts of effort and cost. And some expense. And, and some expense. <laughs> and, and, but if you use it and you know how to use it, yeah. it's, it's hugely, um, makes it a very fair playing field. Um, so, and, and the UK, we excel in innovation and doing new things and um, being visionary, um, having big ideas. You know, we're, we're unfortunately not going to create the next Google because that requires Silicon Valley type investment and we don't do that. Um, we're, we're not we don't have a bunch of entrepreneurs who've 
made so much money they can afford to throw 500 million at a startup that yeah. just has a few of their mates in it. That doesn't happen here. But we have lots of serious science, lots of very capable entrepreneurs. And um, you know, we create niche businesses, businesses that spot opportunities, sometimes global, sometimes global ones, and um, can execute very effectively. And, and yeah, if we, if we, when we find one of those, um, A, we're incredibly happy, and B, our aim is to invest in it and invest in it for a long time. And we think we and our investors will do very well if we do that. I'd like to remind listeners that they can listen to other podcasts in the Moneymakers series, either by going to our website, www.money-makers.co, or by looking for the Moneymakers name on iTunes and other podcast channels. Thank you for listening.